When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. At The Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches, as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Today on The Band of History, we welcome Jonathan Taplin. Fans of the group may know John from his time as the road manager for the band, but John's career spans several decades in multiple industries. A Princeton grad who marched with Martin Luther King and was on the front lines of the civil rights movement was drawn to folk music from folks like Bob Dylan and soon found himself working for Albert Grossman, Dylan's manager. He went on to work with the band for several years during their seminal period of making the Brown album, playing Woodstock, Isle of Wight, and much, much more. He left the band later to do a number of things, from working with the Rolling Stones and George Harrison to producing movies like Mean Streets and coming back into the fold and producing The Last Waltz. Nowadays, Jonathan is an academic and an author, and his latest book, The Magic Years, Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life, is coming out May 14th. I had the great pleasure of sitting down and talking with Jonathan, and we really hope you enjoy it. I really want to ask is somebody who's you know lived this incredible life and you've done a lot of things you've written books before too you've written uh for publications as well why now for a book that is coming out next month the magic years why now for that well i feel like we're in a kind of um nihilistic era now maybe some of that's changing with biden coming in but but for me the the popular culture got very dark in the last 
10 to 15 years. I mean, I would, if you think about looking at television and from The Wire to The Sopranos to Breaking Bad to, you know, all of the shows that are on, they're all about anti-heroes. They're, they're a very dark view of the world. Uh, you know, someone talked about the movie Chinatown in which the last line is, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. In other words, the fix is in and you as a little citizen can't have any power. And of course, the 60s, 70s, and 80s were a complete opposite of that. There were an assertion of the culture and the people that love the culture that they had power. When 350,000 people showed up at Woodstock, it, it was like shocking to the establishment that there were all these rock and roll fans and, and that they would, they would jam up the New York freeway so badly that they, you know, nobody knew what was going on. So I just thought it was time to, to kind of look back at where, what the role artists played in making a society in that era and maybe contrast a little bit with how really artists aren't that important in the political, cultural, society discussion today. I, I would argue that LeBron James is much more a political figure than Kanye West or, or Jay-Z. Right. Now, this is something that's always interested me. It seemed that 9-11 was a turning point for a lot of art. You go back and mention The Wire, Breaking Bad, things like that. As somebody in the film world myself, prior to 9-11, I think you saw a little bit more of uplifting and positivity in movies. Uh, for example, let's take a look at just superhero movies because they're in the, you know, the popular sphere that people talk about. When you watch some of those pre-9-11 superhero movies as opposed to post-9-11, especially with things like the newer Batman and Justice League films, everything seems to be darker. Themes are getting there. Do you think there's some correlation there? I'm on the younger side, so I don't fully get the grasp of it. I but totally you agree think? with you. Um, you know, The Wire came out six months after 9-11. And if you think about how world events have effect on pop culture, you only have to look back to the early 1950s in America. There was, because you're a movie guy, you know, there was a genre called film noir. And in film noir, you assume the worst about everybody, double indemnity, screw the insurance company, we're gonna fake our way out of this. The, the detective was always a cynical guy who believed that everybody was dirty. Um, and that came right after we dropped the atomic bomb on Japan. In other words, that was one of those apocalyptic events that just changed the mentality. And art responds to that. Art picks up on those cues. And so film noir was equally dark, equally believed that there wasn't a solution. And then we had to crawl our way out of that in, in the early 60s. If you think about a song like The Times They Are a Changing, that's a very aspirational song. 
it says, you know, get out of the way. We're going to make change here. And, and don't stand in the doorway, you know, and um, that or we shall overcome, you know, it's very aspirational. And so I just felt it was important for people to realize that culture does have power. And quite honestly, culture actually precedes politics. In other words, right. Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and the Chambers brothers and, and the Staples singers and all these people were singing about civil rights issues three, four years before the politicians got it together to pass a civil rights law. And so culture in general leads the, the politics. Interesting. And one of the most fascinating parts for me in your in your book was talking about your early life, your relationship with your father, kind of what society's expectations were you as, as a man during your generation, being in prep school and then at Princeton and marching and being part of the civil rights uh, movement. And I know a lot of folks bring a lot of duality between that period and some of the kind of unrest that the United States is seeing and the world is seeing in the last few years, uh, especially. Um, with folks like Dylan and some of the earlier folks you worked with, was was that obviously you saw a way in and you started, you know, rubbing shoulders with some of these folks like, like Dylan, but was a draw also the fact that a lot of their messaging was very political and something that you could yeah. get behind? I mean, I... I sometimes wonder what came first. You know, it's a kind of chicken and egg issue. Was I drawn to Bob Dylan because he was singing Blowing in the Wind, which was speaking specifically to those concerns of racial justice that I was interested in? Or was, did Bob Dylan singing Blow in the Wind draw me deeper into the civil rights movement in a way? And then when he showed up, at the March on Washington in 1963, then, you know, I was kind of all in from that point on. And so, I mean, what, what's interesting and a little bit of a parallel to what's going on, what went on last summer in, in the States was that the early civil rights movement that I got involved with, with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was very, mixed race movement. In other words, white and black very much together and brown in, in the marches, in the sit-ins, in everything. And that was a very important thing. And I thought what happened last summer was very similar that white and black and brown kids were all marching together. And it was very, uh, unifying. And of course, as I tell in the book, what, what really happened in the civil rights movement in the United States was that by late 65, early 1966, Stokely Carmichael had taken over the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and he just basically politely asked all the white kids to leave and go join Students for a Democratic Society. And I was not interested in joining Students for a Democratic Society. So I just went into music and 
and I dropped out of politics, like a lot of my friends. I, do you find that that message was counterintuitive to something that Martin Luther King preached and how, about how the importance of bringing together races if you're going to combat things like uh, like the issues that you're seeing then and now still? Uh, did that seem very counterintuitive? Were you kind of caught off totally. guard by that? Because as Martin Luther King wrote from the letter from the Birmingham jail was that the, the white moderates were absolutely critical to his movement because when they got busted and thrown in jail, their friends were saying, what the hell is going on here, you know? And so, uh, you know, when William Sloan Coffin, who is a, a character in my book, goes down on the early freedom rides and gets not only busted, but beat up, uh, and he was a white minister from Yale, <laughs> you know, that caused a lot of uh, consternation, and that's good. Now, talking about music of, of that time, you know, you you were. This is one of the you know most interesting things that you're at all these events that are deemed historic now musically. Uh, Woodstock, Newport, you name it, Isle of Wight. They might be known now and at a very like surface level as these historic music events, whether it's Dylan going electric or just Woodstock where you have all these people coming on. But they, a lot at the core of this, there was a lot of politics. It was a lot of response to what was going on in society at the time as well. Um, and Dylan, you know, obviously he's a character, but you you know him. You know, people have asked him over the years whether he was trying to be political, and he always kind of gives these deflective answers, which, of course, I think if you look at anything, of course, he's protesting and things like that. And he was more or less kind of just waving off people asking such obvious questions. But, you know, outside of going electric or playing music at these events, did you get a sense from people playing these events like Dylan and stuff that they were trying to use their music and their images to kind of help usher in this political change by being at these large well, musical events. Obviously, in the early days, in 63 and 64, Bob was what I would call an activist. I mean, he he played at the March on Washington. He went to Mississippi and, and sang at voting rights rallies and stuff like that. So he was very active. I think John Kennedy getting assassinated freaked him out a bit, to be honest. Um, he gave a very famous speech for a civil rights banquet soon after Kennedy was killed. And he was, some say he was drunk, some people say he was stoned, whatever. But, but he basically said that he could understand Lee Harvey Oswald. Not that he was saying what Lee Harvey Oswald did right, was right, but he could understand the kind of loner aspect of that. And of course that caused unbelievable uproar and everybody was booing him and throwing shit and everything. And he basically ended up making, come to the conclusion that his rebellion was gonna be cultural, not necessarily political as much. In other words, he wasn't gonna be specifically political, he'd stop doing hard rain is going to fall. I mean, he picked it up later, 
but at that time he stopped doing that. And so to him, like a Rolling Stone was political, it was political in the following sense. It was a, a, a kind of fuck you to the folk music movement, right? I'm gonna play rock and roll and I'm not only gonna play rock and roll, I'm gonna do it at the Newport Folk Festival in the hallowed halls of Pete Seeger and Alan Lomax. And if they don't like it, too bad. And that was an act of rebellion. Very, you know, passive aggressive in a very interesting way. And so I think Bob is a revolutionary character his whole life. I mean, the last record he put out you know, his revolutionary record in terms of his looking back at the Kennedy assassination and all that. But uh, it didn't always take the words of blowing in the wind or hard rain's gonna fall or Emmett Till or the kind of stuff that he wrote in 63 and 64. Bob goes electric, he ends up picking up the Hawks uh, a bunch of Canadian guys and American and Levon, and they go on tour. Obviously, those kind of stories are famous of the booing and stuff. I, I want to get your opinion on one specific thing that I think is a crux for the band as we move forward. In terms of early on, obviously, Levon was this leader type figure with the Hawks. Um, you know, he was there with Ronnie before the rest were. He was certainly, you know, one of the older ones. Uh, and after kind of taking that beating on that tour and leaving, uh, you can definitely see later on that that was definitely a defining moment because the power shift changed and kind of Robbie stepped up and, and was the leader. Were you around during that that period where, where Levon was leaving? What was your opinion on it? What did you think about that? I was working for Albert Grossman, who was the manager of Bob Dylan, for another one of his bands called the Jim Queskin Jug Band. So I was at the periphery. Uh, I would be in the office where a lot of this stuff was happening. And I was there when, when basically Bob told Dan Weiner to find this group called the Hawks because John Hammond Jr. had told him about how good they were. And he was desperate to find himself a band that could go on tour with him as opposed to the pickup band he had put together at, at Newport. So I think that in some sense, the Hawks, uh, Levon had definitely been the leader. It was called Levon and the Hawks, right? And he was the lead singer. Uh, but I believe Robbie was, A, Robbie was a songwriter even then, you know, he was, budding songwriter, but he was still trying to write songs. And secondly, Robbie would have been aware of Bob Dylan in a way that Levon was not. Because Levon's musical taste tended to be rhythm and blues. And so he would have been listening to Big Mama Thornton and not necessarily Bob Dylan, you know? Uh, so I think uh, although Levon was ostensibly the leader, 
one of the stories I tell in the band in the book is that when Albert's office first went down and suggested to them that they go on tour with Bob Dylan, Levon was very skeptical of the whole thing. The idea that they were going to play the Hollywood Bowl, which he knew was like a 8,000 seat thing, and that this folky could fill it up was like, give me a break, right? I mean, he had one song on the radio. That was all. Like, how could that happen? So <laughs> they left uh, Garth and Rick and Richard at this roadhouse in New Jersey to hold down the one night stand. And they, Levon and Robbie were the only two who went up to Forest Hills Tennis Stadium to check it out. And they got Harvey Brooks and Al Cooper to play with them. And, and here was Forest Hills and there was 6,000 people. And like Levon was, what the hell, you know? And then they, they called down to the guys and said, no, this is for real, come on up. And so everybody went up to Woodstock and they rehearsed. And then they went to the, and played the Hollywood Bowl. So, I mean, Levon had to be kind of dragged into it to begin with. I think Levon's departure was really a factor of he didn't like getting booed every day. <laughs> he just he just didn't think it was any fun. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and the band literally got booed around the world. You know, and so Levon finally just said, screw it, you know. Yeah. And, you know, they finish out that tour. Obviously, this is all stuff of, you know, major proportion. They finish the leg. They're supposed to go out again. Dylan has the motorcycle accident. Now they're all kind of up in, in Woodstock. Um, and, you know, the Hawks had always, the reason why they left Ronnie is because they were going to go out on their own. They found out, like most people do, when you go out on your own, it's a lot harder than you think it is. But now, but now you get an opportunity, you know, spending time with Dylan really kind of extrapolates, you know, Robbie's ability to write songs and started thinking outside of just R&B or blues music. Richard, at this point, is writing a lot of material as well. So you have this kind of collaborative and kind of, commune type thing um and what's interesting i find too is you know you have a bunch of and, and a lot of people have talked about this you have a bunch of canadians kind of from the outside coming in and ironically years later people are like oh the band one of these founders of americana music right um and what i want to ask you is well, on the surface, some of those early band songs don't seem overtly political. I think if you dig into some of the music on music from Big Pink or even the Brown album and just kind of telling the stories of these people that they kind of came across from, you know, touring uh, the circuits in the U.S., do you think there is some more hidden, deeper political kind of messaging in some of these songs like Richard Manuel's, you know, We Can Talk or even something... Like, obviously, we get a bit later with The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. I think there's something political there as well. Would you agree with that? Yeah. So, first off, the band wrote about working-class people. In other words, 
Whereas, you know, the Eagles might write life in the fast lane. The band didn't write about skinny girls snorting cocaine and cheating on their rich husbands. They wrote about uh, real working class people. And so in that very sense, that was in its own way a political statement. Um, this was not, you know, stick with me and everything will be cool. This was like, life is hard and pride is something that's important. That's, to me, that's what Dixie is all about, you know, and uh, the things are not as simple as they seem, you know, in other words, none of this is black and white, this is very great. There's lots of gray areas in these songs. And so I think they were, they were those first three or four years of first, certainly the first three albums are just extraordinary in terms of the, the breadth of the kind of subject matter that they are taking on and, and how they're talking about the world and about the US. And, and it could be that only a Canadian could see it clear enough, absorb all that wonderful Southern, you know, Delta feeling, but still have a little distance from it. And, and that's partially why those records are so extraordinary. Now you come into the fold, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, in around 69 in terms of being with the band specifically. Yeah. Um, and the band is notorious for kind of being like private. They've got a tight circle. Uh, you know, there was even stories about how they weren't sure that they wanted somebody like John Simon coming in originally because they're like, this is somebody coming into our world and our specific idea of what we want to do. How was, how was, you know, obviously there was some overlap because you'd been working with Grossman and, and Dylan and things like that. But when you kind of came into the fold, how were you welcomed and, and what kind of experience did you have in those first kind of initial well, months? Well, it was, it was kind of slow in the sense that my first experience was really up close was I was producing the Woody Guthrie tribute at Carnegie Hall for Harold Leventhal. And Bob and the band had agreed to come out of hiding to play three songs at that tribute. And that was literally the headline in the New York Daily News with Dylan emerges, you know, and, uh, and Albert was so paranoid, he tried to get everyone, no cameras, right? He, he didn't want anyone to take a picture of Bob even. Um, that didn't succeed. Someone managed to take a picture, but and it was on the cover of the New York Daily News the next morning. But the point was that at that point, they were just thinking of, they were still the Hawks, and they were thinking of doing their own record and then doing a little tour. Um, and so Robbie asked me, did I want to be their road manager? Now that was like, January of 68. And I said, absolutely, you know. And then, as you know, Rick broke his neck 
after they'd recorded Big Pink. And so they didn't go out on tour. Rick had a bad car accident. And so I didn't actually get back together again with him until January of 69, when they said, okay, we're going to go out to California to record the Brown album. And so I got my college roommate and I had a, got a, a van that Albert had and we packed up everything, including Garth's Lowry organ, which he was not going to rent a Hammond organ in Hollywood. He had to have his Lowry. And we took it all out to LA and, and made a recording studio out of Sammy Davis Jr.'s house, Pool House. And, and then I went back to Princeton for a month and essentially finished my degree. I then came back in May when basically the album was done. That's crazy. And, and what was it like, you know, moving, moving the group out to uh, LA? Uh, you know, a lot of people think the band is so anonymous with that Woodstock feel and everything, but obviously the Brown album is recorded in LA. Uh, what what was like that and what did the guys think about moving out to LA to do it? Obviously they probably were looking forward to that warm weather Absolutely. and just kind of a change of I pace. Mean, eh? Winter in Woodstock is no fun. It's a it's a bitch, you know, and and it's not like winter in New York City when there's trucks that come down and plow the roads. I mean, you could get stuck in your house for a couple of days, you know. Uh, so it's just not conducive. To doing that so everybody was very happy to be in a warm place with a swimming pool and a you know enough rooms so that it was like a clubhouse you know and the band always kind of liked the idea of a clubhouse so you know even Shangri-La was a clubhouse in a way later on um so uh it it worked out really well I mean the idea that you would would not have a normal recording studio was something they so desperately wanted because doing Big Pink, which they had done in New York in a traditional recording studio, uh, the engineers kept trying to keep everybody separate with these baffles and stuff like that. And, and, and the band kept saying, no, we have to be right near each other because the singing is all looks and cues and everybody has to be very close. So they didn't like the way things were engineered anyway. So the idea of just a big open room, no baffles, don't put Levon behind a wall, you know, was that's what they wanted. And, and the sound is kind of a little rougher than the albums of those time. And, it's that's what makes it so cool yeah it's it's muddier it's a little bit it gives you yeah. more of that live type of feel uh you talked about it in your book but very common during that area was a highly compressed sound you still get that in yeah. pop music today uh but they, it kind of was the opposite of that more acoustic right. feeling and things now one thing that people always ask and i try to ask all all my guests this uh, i've asked elliot landy this uh, et cetera, et cetera, is you know a lot of these guys are, are myths to people that admire them. Like, especially somebody like Richard who passed away so long ago. And you have a bunch of fans now that 
only know Richard as a member of the band. He's a great singer. You know, you see pictures of him, et cetera, et cetera. Can you give us a little insight on kind of little tidbits about these guys? Like what really made some of these folks tick? Um, I know you have that. One of my favorite stories in the book is when you and Richard tripped acid. And then later that night, you watched the moon landing, which is this historic event, which you know, looking back must be a little bit crazy, but can you give us, you know, a little insight into some of so, these guys? Richard was a prankster. Richard liked to have fun. Uh, and at that point in 69, in the summer of 69, um, even into 70, he wasn't drinking that much. He would drink at night, but he didn't drink during the day. And so he was just, he'd like to have fun. I mean, I'll tell you that, you know, when you were on the road, and this is not talking out of school because people have said it before, but the notion of an orgy was actually something that often happened. And the one who would always start it was Richard. (laughs) (laughs) You'd be in a huge hotel suite and he'd say, well, who's going to take your clothes off? <laughs> you know, and, but Richard, you know, when I turned 22 and got my draft notice that I wasn't going to be drafted, Richard's idea was, well, we need to celebrate. And so he, right. he brought over three tabs of the best LSD in the world and gave one to me, took one himself, and gave one to Andy Yarrow, who was Peter Yarrow's brother. And we we had a good old time, and about three hours into it, Richard, when I was totally on the ceiling, Richard said, well, let's go for a drink at Deanie's. And Deanie's was the, the cop bar in Woodstock. <laughs> it was a bar where all the policemen hung out. I thought that was a bad idea. He said, no, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. They love me there. And we went, we went, we, he dragged us there, but we, we had a couple of pops with Richard at Dini's and then we convinced him that we had to get out of there. And we went to his house and by that time it was dark and we turned on the TV and there's the, the thing is landing on the moon and we're waiting for this guy to step down the ladder. And it was like, holy cow. And we were high as a kite, you know, and there was a guy named Mason Hoffenberg who had written a, Richard's Next Door Neighbor, had written a book called Candy with Terry Southern. And he was the most cynical person I'd ever met in my whole life. And he came over and he said, and he knew we were all on LSD. And he said, oh, that's just fate. That's being done in a, right. <laughs> in a, a Hollywood sound stage. You know, you guys are such suckers. That that's crazy. Uh, now, with uh, with other folks, how about like Garth? I know I've talked to Garth. I've talked to Garth a number of times. He's a, he's a character oh. too. He's his own type of guy. Um, you know, I one of the questions a lot of my listeners want to know is, as being the road manager, you you were with these guys on the road a lot. What what was going on when you're not playing music? Like, what's Garth up to? I don't know if I feel like I don't know if Garth's like an orgy guy. No, what was he up to? Garth he... was not an orgy guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, Garth would carry a 
like a clarinet or some small instrument that he could carry with him. Needless to say, we're not gonna bring his organ into his hotel room. <clears throat> so he liked to practice on uh, a soprano saxophone, uh, things like that. And, and Garth's main thing was when he started to get into money, everybody else bought fancy cars. Garth bought a kind of pedestrian Mercedes diesel and spent most of his money on musical instruments. There was a musical instrument shop out past Woodstock and he, we would go out there twice a week, man. And Garth would look at clarinets or saxophones or, you know, any oddball music, you know, and, and you know, when you hear a song like the river hymn or something like that, you realize that's all Garth, all those instruments, you know, the melodeon, the squeeze box, the, the accordions, whatever. He just loved that stuff. So um, for me, Garth also taught me a lot about a history of music because he was a complete jazz fanatic. So he taught me about Coleman Hawkins, about Dizzy Gillespie. I, I talk about some of that in the book of, of you know, the roots of, of bebop and all of that, which is essential to Garth's kind of mental way of thinking. And um, so in that sense, he was wonderful. Garth also had a couple of very unique qualities. He could fall asleep like in two minutes anywhere in the world. He could be in an airplane sitting up, he'd fall asleep. He could be in an automobile sitting up, he could fall asleep and he would just go out. I don't know how he did it. People would be talking, hammering away and he would be gone. And I, he didn't put earplugs in or anything. He just had ability to tune out the world. Um, he was amusing, funny, you know, as you well know, he kind of offbeat sense of humor. Um, Rick, Rick was also very joyful. Rick was just felt he was the luckiest man in the world. You know, his father made a living as a woodcutter. That means literally chopping wood for a living. And I think Rick thought that that was going to be his fate too, if he hadn't figured out how to play the bass guitar. And uh, so he just thought, man, this is the best. You know, he, he liked big, fast American cars, Pontiacs, stuff like that. He had a, he had a Lincoln, he called a Lincoln Confidential. Uh, <laughs> a big old four-door Lincoln, you know. Uh, I know, he, he was amusing, very funny. After the concert was over, he and Levon were always the leaders of the hotel room sing-along, you know. And if there wasn't an orgy, there was a hotel sing-along. <laughs> and and Levon and Rick, ain't no more can on the Brazos, you know, whatever it was, you know, Jimmy Rogers tunes, whatever. They shared a kind of love of that Delta music, whether it's 
white country harmonies or blues harmonies? We obviously, I think most people know the, the most about Robbie and Levon. Obviously, I think they were, in Robbie's case, he was always very active giving interviews and stuff well with the band, kind of as that spokesperson. And, and Levon, um, incredibly prolific. I think Levon, obviously, there's so, there's something about his southern charm and so you put Levon in a room and everybody just gravitates towards him uh so knowing a lot about them what do you think about uh, about those two I, i'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on their dynamic you know i i think both Levon and robbie have talked about the brotherhood they they shared they were super super close for a very very long time what do you think it was about their relationship that made them so close well for robbie levon was like the perfect singer for the kind of music he was trying to write at that time he had a voice that was so authentic if you could use that word that there was nothing pop about it. It was, it had, it had all that dirt of country music and rhythm and blues in it. And, and so in that sense, secondly, Levon was one of the great drummers. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll never forget Ringo Starr uh, and George Harrison and John Lennon came to visit us when we were at the Isle of Wight with Bob. And Ringo said to me, you know, Levon is the best drummer in the world, you know, and that's coming from Ringo, who was a damn good drummer, right? And Levon could do anything. He could do a shuffle beat. He could do, he could just figure out any kind of beat. And, and so he was a great drummer. And to be able to be a great drummer and sing at the same time, there's only a few people who can do that. Don Henley could do it, and and Levon could do it, and and it's it's not easy. Um, you know, I mean, for Robbie, for Levon, Robbie was this great songwriter, and and also he respected Robbie's business sense. I mean, Robbie did have once the band began to become successful Robbie was the one who dealt with Albert and me most of the time in terms of planning out what we were going to do when there was going to be an album when there was going to be a tour and all that and then he would bring it back to the band so by late 1969 he was the leader uh, ostensibly of the band you know not Levon and Levon respected his songwriting, loved his songwriting. And, you know, I mean, all the, the troubles that came later were not apparent at, at all in 69, 70, 71. You know, nobody mm -hmm. was complaining about anything at that time. Now, when... You were with them for you know a decent period of time, but you eventually made your exit and started doing other things. And I know you talk about, which I find very interesting, the glamours of rock and roll and, and coming into that world. But very soon you saw the other side of that, you know, the drugs, the excessiveness of it. Um, also during that period, like this is when folks that were, you know, 
huge started dying. You know what I mean? Whether it's, you know, Janis Joplin or Jimi Hendrix and stuff like that. When, when did you know it was the right moment to leave the band? Well, in 71, uh, George Harrison came up to Woodstock to hang out. And, and he was at a point where he was really separating himself from the Beatles and he was doing his own album. And he was a good friend of Bob's and a good friend of Robbie's and a fairly good friend of mine because I had visited him in England a couple of times. And he was staying at my house and he suggested this, that he wanted to do this concert for Ravi Shankar called the Concert for Bangladesh. And so we very quickly started organizing that and that the band wasn't on the road at that point. And so I, that took the whole summer. They were doing cahoots. Uh, they were recording cahoots, but I wasn't really involved in the recording part of it. And so I took the whole summer and did this concert for Bangladesh. And that, that was its own struggle, you know, I mean, because Eric Clapton was not well and uh, Bob was a little skittish and, but we pulled it off and it was, when it was over, I really realized that all the people I really cared about didn't want to go on the road. Bob didn't want to go on the road. Van was not really interested in touring at that point. Uh, they were beginning to have drug problems. Richard was drinking a lot by that point. Um, and, you know, Eric Clapton was too sick. George Harrison didn't want to travel. And so the only big group that could afford the kind of big tour operation that I had built was Alice Cooper. And I, the idea of going out and watch someone bite the head off a chicken every night was just not my idea of a good time. <laughs> so I said no, and I, I flirted with taking the Rolling Stones on tour and went and had an interview in the south of France and said no to that. And then I just said, well, let me see what's in the movie business. It couldn't be that hard. I mean, my how, this is how naive I was. I thought, look, in rock and roll, if something goes wrong and there's 10,000 people in a stadium clapping, you are screwed. You've got to make it work, right? In the movies, if something goes wrong, you say, okay, we'll come back tomorrow and fix, do it again. You know, there's none of that pressure. So that was how naive I was. I didn't realize how complicated the movies were, but that's another story. Right. And you you get involved uh, with Martin Scorsese, who had just kind of, he was working on the Woodstock film. He was out in LA trying to get his film career going. Um, and, you know, Mean Streets is now a classic. I think I watched it when I was going to film school as well as the last waltz, which we'll get to. But, you know, at this point, Martin Scorsese isn't the legend that he is now. You get into this. And like you said, you're a little bit naive. How was it making a film like this? Like, obviously we were at a point where now we look back at it and it was a Renaissance for indie filmmakers, the George Lucas's, the Francis Ford Coppola's of the world, you know, really taking over from this like high budget B 
big spectacle and kind of rooting things down, similar to what the band was doing with music. What was it like kind of trying to get Mean Streets off the ground? Well, I mean, I was completely naive. Uh, I, I didn't know, for one thing, that you weren't spo- supposed to put your own money into making movies. You know, in Hollywood, they have this phrase, OPM, other people's money. Uh, but nobody told me about OPM. And so I came out and, and I was introduced to Marty by a writer named Jay Cox. And he had this script called Season of the Witch. And I, w- I liked it. And then I went to see his student films. And I really liked one of them a lot, a, a short called It's Not Just You, Murray. I mean, I really liked it. And it was so inventive. And I just thought, well, what the hell? I, I, I have a friend who had some money. And so we each put in 250000 which for me was all the money I had in the world. And we each put the money in, and we made the movie for 500000 And then we took it out and sold it. And fortunately, it turned out to be a good movie, and we were able to sell it. Um, there was a little moment first day we were out showing it to the major studios when I thought, oh, maybe I won't make my money back at all. Maybe I'll lose everything. When when the executive at Universal said, uh, this is not a movie for the major studios. So, But fortunately, Warner Brothers liked it and, and bought it, and and the rest is, is history. So it was it was a lot of luck. Uh, and, and, you know, a little bit of understanding that you have to take chances uh, and you can't sit still, uh, you know, that kind of feeling. Yeah. No, I think I feel like that sums up your career perfectly in that one sentence. But now you leave the band, but it's not the end. Obviously, you start working with Scorsese, you start producing movies, you're, you're living in L.A. Now comes many years later, the band you've you probably left them at a good time they're not necessarily in the greatest a spot uh there's talks of doing a concert uh to kind of get off the road you know there's so many stories from that time like you know robbie's like initially we wanted to get off the road and kind of be like the beatles and just make music but as we know that really never kind of happened and then it kind of you know people started doing their own solo stuff like rick and his album which you see in the last waltz a little bit of what what were some of those initial conversations about this show that is now going to become this movie? And how do you, I feel like you're the conduit there for bringing somebody like Martin Scorsese in the so pool, right? So Robbie came to me and said, look, we want to do this final show. And we've got Bill Graham to do it on Thanksgiving in Winterland. So now we want to try and make a movie of it. And I said, well, look, Marty is a huge fan of your music. The only problem is he's right in the middle of shooting his first really big budget movie called New York, New York. And, but I think we'd be missing a mistake if we didn't at least let him have the chance to see if he could figure out how to do this. So we... I made an appointment with him for me and Robbie to go to his office at MGM 
at like 9.30 at night one night when he'd finished shooting, he'd seen his rushes for the day. And he just said, I want to do it. You can't let anybody else do this. I'm going to do it. And so then we had to figure out how to do it because the good thing was that the unions for the studios had made Thanksgiving a big holiday. In other words, it, you, you were like, you had to quit work Wednesday at like noon and then all Thursday, all Friday, all Saturday, all Sunday was off. So it was a four and a half day holiday. So there was a window that we could actually do it if we did all the preparation and got everything up there and, and Marty could just kind of fly in. But Marty being Marty, he, he wanted to make sure it was different from any other music movie that ever had happened. So he, he got the lyric sheets for every single song and then he would draw on them which camera should be on which person. And, and Robbie would give him notes as to when the solos came in. And, oh, Garth's doing a solo here, or I'm doing a solo here, or whatever. Levon comes in here, you know. And so he had this whole schematic drawn out. And then, of course, Marty wanted to do it on 35 millimeter film, which was complicated. So First off, he got Michael Chapman, who was a cinematographer, and he was like the chief DP. And then he, Michael hired Laszlo Kovacs, Vilmos Zygmunt. I mean, all these very famous DPs. And it was just like, oh, you want to go up and be with the band on Thanksgiving night? And everybody said, yeah. So we got this extraordinary crew of cinematographers. And we set it all up the day before, and, and then they all get there, and they realize that Marty wants them to wear headphones so he can be talking to them to telling them what to do. And they all kind of, that was not what famous DPs do, but they understood there was a plan, there was a method to the madness. So they, they did it. And... I mean, there's a very good story about that. Do you want me to tell you? Is it the Muddy Waters one? Yeah. With, uh, yeah, yeah. That's a classic. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So, so Laszlo Kovacs had the position right off the side of the stage in the front. And because we were shooting 35 millimeter film, every 10 minutes you had to change reels. So you couldn't just go all the way through and record every single song. You had to choose which songs you were gonna film. And so Muddy Waters did not come for rehearsal. So all Marty knew was he had two songs he was gonna do. One was called Caledonia and one was called Manish Boy. And Marty didn't know that Manish Boy was I'm a man, right? So uh, Muddy gets up, and so the decision had been, okay, everyone will shut down during Manish Boy and change magazines, 
uh, then we'll do we'll shoot Caledonia. So Laszlo Kovacs had gotten so pissed off with Marty yelling at his ears that he took his earphones off and didn't get the notice that he was supposed to stop shooting. And then, of course, the opening chords of I'm a Man comes in and Marty goes, oh, fuck. This is all we need. And everyone is shut down except Laszlo. And so Laszlo is still shooting. And if you see it in the film, there's only one camera angle for almost three quarters of the, of the song. And for some lucky reason, Laszlo didn't run out of film until literally Vilmos Sigmund, who had the very wide shot, came, got his reloaded and got the thing back in literally like three seconds before Laszlo ran out of film. Yeah. And you know what? In the end, that mistake is, I think, a defining moment of the film. You know, that one angle, that's all you need because Muddy is just so engrossing totally. that you're just kind totally. of transfixed by it. So, like, in the end, it it worked out. Um, and, he, and he pulls back just far enough so you can hear Robbie egging him on and you can see, you know, Paul Butterfield. And, I mean, it's all... It's all just brilliant. And he's in and out. And it's just astonishing. Now, there's there's a bunch of other things that I can touch on, too. Like, you know, obviously you talk about it. And one of the famous things, Neil Young with the, with the cocaine or um, the uh, one thing I really want to ask you about is so you do this this show. And I'd, I'd like to ask you about uh, what it was like being there for those hours, but also that's not the end. You shoot the show and then it's determined later that you're going to go back to MGM soundstage and shoot some additional performances, which ended up becoming legendary, like the one with the Staples, for example, or Emmy Lou Harris. Um, but there's also, you know, interviews added uh, from Shangri-La too, like the Rick moment or just interviews and them playing pool and stuff like that. Um what was what was the thought process behind going back and adding? Uh, obviously, I think it's important now in context because you're getting all this additional stuff that is really great. But did they find that the film was maybe a little bit too incomplete and they needed those kind of stop gaps to kind of fill it in? Well, no. I mean, there was always a notion that there would be some interview sequences. But the idea to shoot on a soundstage, the Emmy Lou Harris the last waltz theme and the staples was to be honest with you a kind of coke fueled mania <laughs> uh robbie thought it was important to get a country audience and a black audience in other words you basically had the old rhythm and blues guy in Muddy Waters, but something more contemporary like the Staples was better. And second, Emmy was the great country music star of the time. And, and so if you could do it, why not do it? And, and we'd sold the movie to United Artists. So we had some money, we could do that. It ended up being insane 
because Marty could only shoot at night. You know, we would literally start shooting at 10 at night. And I don't know if you know anything about Hollywood unions, but this is called golden time and magic time. And, and, and it's, it's so expensive. It's like double overtime for everybody all night. It was, it was ridiculous for what we got out of it. It was like, why don't we just flush, you know, half a million dollars down the drain, honestly. I mean, I love the Staples thing. I love Emmy's performance, but it wasn't necessary. It was just, but it was, look, I, as, as you well know, I mean, Robbie and Marty were, you know, living in a house together and they were just like, you know, they would, come up with brilliant ideas at three in the morning, build by this Levon used to call it philosopher's powder. (laughs) (laughs) Now I I have a question from this guy. His name's Dag. He does a lot of great research and archiving of band materials. He gets ticket stubs and photos and newsprints of everything. He's, He's a great guy. He had one question that he wanted to run by you. Um, he says, apparently Scorsese did some filming in Woodstock in 77. Uh, and Dag says that he has a theory that the last waltz was going to have a segment on what the members of the band were doing after the last waltz, but only Rick's made it into the final cut. Is there any truth to that? Was there more footage of showing some of the other members doing other stuff? Cause there's some photos of that time and of, uh, Cruz being there. Do you know anything about that? I mean, the only shooting we did after the movie was at Shangri-La. Everyone had moved to California by that time. So I don't know what. I mean, there was a there was a shoot, a famous shoot in '69 in Robbie's studio in Woodstock, which you've seen some of it's in that film that Robbie came out with. You know, we were brothers. Uh, but no, I've never don't know anything about that. Cool. No, that's that's exactly what. Uh, we want to clarify with you there. It doesn't stop there, though. The one thing, the last thing I want to ask you about was, so the last waltz happens and, and the band kind of dissipates and does their own stuff. Um, but uh, I think with the last waltz, it kind of became a star vehicle for some of these guys. You know, Levon went on to have a pretty pretty damn yeah. good acting career out of it, Coal Miner's Daughter yeah. and things like that. But also Robbie was interested in that as well. And... That's how kind of Carney mm-hmm. comes about, which is very much from my understanding based off of his experience working carnivals right. and stuff like that as a kid. And you uh, executive yeah. produced that film. J- what was that all about? I know, like it's a crazy, it's a crazy film too. I've I've, I've watched it. It's it's very interesting. Like how how did uh, how did that come about? I know Robbie said he didn't want to act in it originally, but obviously he's in it. And then you have Gary Busey and Jodie Foster. Like walk us through getting that off the ground. Well, Robbie had been fascinated with carnivals, as you know, forever, and written some songs about it, W.S. Walcott and Life is a Carnival. Uh, So he came across this script, and after The Last Waltz, everybody, a lot of people were saying, oh, you should be a movie star. You're so handsome and everything like that. And so he kind of listened, but he, he didn't know what that meant. 
what acting really meant. So we kind of fell into it. And, and then, you know, we, we put it together and we got Gary Busey who had just done the Buddy Holly movie. So he was kind of hot. And then Jodie Foster was introduced to us by Marty and cause she'd done Taxi Driver with him. And it, it just kind of came together. Um, the guy who owned the script insisted on being director, which was a kind of a mistake. He wasn't very strong and Jerry Busey was like a bull in a China shop. He had just gotten a nominated of Academy Award so he he basically thought he was God's gift to acting. And again, like lots of other people at the time, he was doing a couple of grams of cocaine a day and a bottle of vodka a day. And so he was just a, a madman. And for me, it was the most painful movie experience I ever had because he wouldn't come out of his trailer. He, he had lo so lost confidence in the director and he was so crazed that, you know, he was, it was just, a, it was horrible. And at one point I got his agent, Meyer Mishkin, to come down and, and Meyer comes down and, and Gary and Robbie had a house in Savannah, Georgia, where we were shooting it. So they knew they had to be on their best behavior because they knew why Meyer was there, was that I was actually ready to fire Gary Busey. And uh, so they were on their best behavior. And, and Meyer said in the middle of dinner, he said, you know, Gary, I had this client once named Chuck Connors. And he did a series called The Rifleman. And it was a really big hit series. But he was such an asshole and he was such a horrible person that when the rifleman was canceled, I was never able to get him another job in his life. <laughs> so Gary got the point and started behaving a little bit better and um, we got through it. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's a great movie. Uh, the other bizarre thing about it was that John Hinckley, who ended up trying to kill Ronald Reagan was obsessed with Jody Foster. And he kept showing up on the set trying to be an extra. And Jody's mother had a restraining order against the guy. And I kept having to have cops throw this guy off the set. And eventually they threatened to put him in jail and he left town and then Five months later, he, he went and shot Ronald Reagan. I mean, the guy was Looney Tunes, but I mean, poor Jody. I mean, he, he, was, he was just obsessed with her. Well, just unwrapping here, John, I want to give you the opportunity to plug your new book. I think it's really wonderful, and I really hope people check it out. Where can people find it? Okay, so it, it's called The Magic Years, Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life, and it, it basically takes you from about 1962 when I first started listening to folk music to, you know, early 1990s when I, I did a film called Shine and went to Sundance and 
Harvey Weinstein tried to strangle me in public because uh, I didn't sell the movie to him. So it's a fairly large canvas and it's, it's music and it's movies, it's politics because politics was inevitably part of that world. Uh, and it's just kind of the one person's kind of social history of that era. Uh, and, you know, I, I think I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time a few times. And, you know, so in that sense, I think people enjoy it. There's lots of fun stories, but hopefully there's some insight, too, into what made the culture so powerful and, and made these artists that changed our lives. So it, it, it comes out on May 4th. Uh, you can pre-order it now on Amazon or any other book site that you like to buy your books from. And uh, I'd appreciate it if you, you do that. There's an audio book for it. Uh, and there's a Kindle version as well. Thanks, Terrell. Really appreciate it, man. That was my interview with Jonathan Taplin. We really hope you enjoy it. Uh, the book is fantastic. I couldn't put it down. Definitely go out and pre-order it. You can find it, like John said, on any website or any place that you like to buy books. There's an audio book as well as physical copies and digital copies. So make sure you check that out. There's just so much that we didn't get to talk about. But in you know there's there's crazy movie stories there's stuff about disney in there there's just so much so i hope you really enjoyed this episode if you want to follow the band podcast online you can we're on instagram facebook twitter we have a facebook group all at the band podcast you can find us there we put a lot of great effort into providing awesome content on our social platforms that is separate from the podcast so definitely check that out and also if you're interested in becoming a patron and supporting the show monthly and donating to help make the show, you can definitely do that at patreon.com slash thebandpodcast. I want to thank everybody who already supports the show on Patreon. You are the ones responsible for keeping this show going, so thank you dearly. Anyways, we'll catch everybody else on the next episode of the podcast. At The Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done.